Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so that we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crocs for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. My guest today hardly needs introducing. Jeff Keane's memories of his life as the Confederate General John B. Gordon has been told and retold so many times, as it's considered one of the cases that provides strong evidential proof, but we're rarely lucky enough to hear Jeff himself speaking about it. So I hope you enjoy hearing this well-known and fascinating case in Jeff's own words. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's such an honor to have you here. Well, it's always great talking to you. Oh, thank you very much. We have had a chat before and I really did enjoy it. So I'm really glad that you uh, agreed to come on and talk to me because you've just got such an interesting story. But it's also, as you've sort of gone along, you've kind of embraced reincarnation itself as well. And so you've actually just started writing another book, haven't you? You've actually just got involved in it with another story. Well, it's kind of a part of the first book that I wrote and then uh, a newer portion kind of bringing uh, people up to date on what's happened. And it's at uh, two publishers now. So it's one of those things you just have to hurry up and wait. Some Sometimes you don't hear anything back for uh, five, six months. Well, it's, I hope they do pick it up because it's a really interesting story and it's one that as you know, I have touched on before. So it, just people keep your eye out for Jeff's book because it may come out within the next sort of, what, few months would it be? Or I have no idea of, if you know any way to speed up the process. But nowadays you could actually put the book out yourself. But uh, I'd rather go through a publisher because of the uh, distribution I'll get. And uh, the, more, the more the stories passed around, the, the more I'll like it. So. Fair enough, because, I mean, it's a good story. And actually, your own book that you've you've written, Someone Else's Yesterday, um, yes. that's an amazing book. I've actually been reading it this week. I am so loving it. And you've got such interesting stories that you bring up in it. I found it really fascinating because of talking about not just the reincarnation angle, which is absolutely amazing, but the history of it as well. It's a sort of book that could really go across genres, actually, because people who are interested in General Gordon or in the Civil War would find it equally fascinating. People say it's a fascinating story. It still fascinates me, and, and I live through it, and every once in a while I have to go back and read some of my book and shake my head and say, yeah, it did happen. Because uh, I tell people I was pushed around like a shopping cart. I would go to places I needed to go to. I would run into people that I needed to talk to and so on. It was that people would call them coincidences, but, uh, you know, after... Uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 coincidences, they keep piling up. You, you stop You stop using that word. That's just a convenient word for a lot of people that don't want to do some deep thinking. But It's actually a recognized thing with regard to a lot of these cases. It's amazing how many times people have sort of almost a miraculous coincidence that keeps them on the path to finding the truth. And as you know, the term that they use to describe that is synchronicity. You know, events happen that really shouldn't happen but that will then lead you on to more information. And your book is just staggering for the amount of it. It's almost like you left yourself a lot of little breadcrumbs this time around when you came back to, that would force you to look at what happened. Did you have any kind of memories or anything when you were a little boy? Some of the things that happened in childhood 
play into the Gordon story. But uh, probably for the listeners, it might be helpful if uh, I mentioned my website, uh, jeffreykeen.com, and on there is a uh, 14-minute video, proof positive program. It's done on a sci-fi channel here in the States. But somebody took all my pieces of the program and put them all together and ran it straight through. So it, it tells the, the story of what happened to me on the uh, Civil War battlefield. That battlefield and all that, that started it. So I'm sure most people who are interested in reincarnation do know the story, but new listeners who are just starting out, the event you're talking about is you went to the Sunken Road on the battleground of Antietam in Sharpsburg in May 1991. And you had a profound experience. So would you mind telling us what happened? We were down in, uh, going through Pennsylvania and down toward Maryland and Virginia and all. And we were antique hunting, my wife and I. And I had seen a few of the Ken Burns series on TV of the, uh, the Civil War series. He did a fantastic job on that. Antietam was the bloodiest day in the history of the United States. It was worse than anything during uh, any of the world wars. Uh, I think the 11-hour battle, it was 23,000 killed, wounded, or missing. So it uh, was quite a nasty battle. And I just felt like I wanted to go over and, and see it for myself. And I asked my wife if it was okay if we took a little side trip over. And the battle was uh, divided really into three portions, the uh, cornfield, the sunken road, and, and uh, Burnside's Bridge. We went to the cornfield first, and my wife got out. We walked around, looked at some monuments. She's not much into history, so that was the end of her historical career, and she got back in the car. So the next place I stopped at was uh, Sunken Road, and they call it the Sunken Road because it actually is sunken in places. It looks like a trench. It's just worn down from all the uh, wagons running up and down the road over the years. And there was a tape built into a stone wall. I played the tape and listened little about the battle that was going on there and then walked down some stone steps into the actual road itself and then made a, a left-hand turn and I walked about oh, 20 yards or so and was struck by what some people might call an anxiety reaction I didn't I didn't know what was happening though I uh, I started crying I was mad I was angry I was sad talk about sad. I tell people, if you take the saddest you've ever been and multiply that by about a thousand, that gets close to it. I was so upset by what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. I thought maybe I was having a heart attack, but I didn't have any pain. I actually crawled up the side of the embankment to get out of the road. And uh, when I went back to the car, it felt like I'd run a marathon. I didn't tell my wife anything about what had happened because I didn't know what had happened to myself, so how am I going to explain it all to her? And I drove off to Burnside's Bridge, another section of the battlefield, and went by myself over to the bridge and stood there and, and gathered myself together and everything and went back to the car. But when we're leaving the area, we stopped at a gift shop store or whatever, and my wife's looking around for some trinkets to buy, and I, I saw this magazine, uh, Civil War Quarterly, and uh, said Antietam edition, so I threw it on the counter. Now we have to fast forward a year and a half. I went with my wife to a birthday slash Halloween party. A friend of hers just happened to be born on Halloween. And they had rented a restaurant. They did it up real nice with all decorations. They had a fellow doing caricatures and 
than they had a palm reader. Now, I'd never seen a psychic or a palm reader before. And as I was going through the line to have a cartoon done with my wife, I kept watching this woman and I'm saying to myself, she seems very sincere and honest, you know, and it looks like I may well try that. So I told my wife, I said, after dinner, why don't we go uh, see the palm reader? So I was in front of her in line, and we were almost up to the palm reader, and I was watching over a lot of people because they kind of was a little skeptical. But I just turned around to my wife and I said, watch when she gets to me. And my wife says, why? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so I sat down in front of her, and she took my hands and looked at him. She says, oh, you've got a long lifeline and everything. And then, then she dropped him, and she said, you're very intelligent. You're, well, she said you're intelligent, and then she said you're very intelligent. And, you know, I wasn't going to argue with her. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> she says, no, you know things about doors opening and closing, stuff like that. Well, she looked at my hand again. She said, you have a simian line on your hand, which is the one that's the first developed. It goes across your palm. She said, yours is the second longest one I've seen. She said, it's almost wrapped down around the side. Now, I should have asked her what that meant, but... <laughs> um, I did, and then she went on. She said, uh, yeah, you felt some things. I told her about what happened at the sunken road, and she's shaking her head. She said, yes, that's because she died there. She said, but you she said you hung around for a long time. You hovered over your body, and you yelled no. And for some reason, unknown to me, I said to her, not yet. And she says, yes, like not yet. So other people all waiting in line, and, and uh, she pretty much finished up with me, and Went back to the table a little while later. I want to go through the line to see her again. Went through the line, sat down with her, and she said, oh, I've taken you as far as I can go. I said, but let me ask you one thing. Was the soldier dead? Are you sure he was dead? She said, oh, honey, you had holes all shot all through you. I said, oh, okay. On the way home, my wife said, "Uh, what kind of soldier do you think you were? I said, "I, I don't know. So I took my wife to work the next morning, and remembering the magazine that I've had for a year and a half now and never read, the one bought down in Antietam, was in with the phone books. I also realized that's the first time I ever put a magazine in with the phone books. At that time when we had phone books, everybody knew where their phone books were. Putting it there, I would know where that magazine was, and I hadn't read it. So I took the magazine out and opened it up to uh, the Sunken Road portion, and it said there was a... uh, Colonel John Gordon's men were in the Sunken Road, and they wanted to shoot. He was a Confederate colonel at the time. And he kept yelling at them, not yet, not yet. He wait for the orders from the center. He wanted to do one of those things, you know, wait till they see the whites of their eyes type, <laughs> type deals. So he said that his men had believed he wasn't vulnerable to being wounded, but he said he proved him wrong that day because he was uh, wounded five times. He was shot in the... Uh, right leg through the calf, and then higher up in the same leg, uh, shot in the left arm, shot in the shoulder, and then the last round that hit him went just under his left eye, through his face, and broke his jaw and almost severed his uh, jugular vein in his neck as it went out. And that's the one that put him out of commission for the day. He fell over into his kepi, the little cap he had on, and he said if it hadn't been for a considerate Yankee shooting a bullet hole through his hat, he probably would have drowned in his own blood. But he didn't die that day. 
over on the other page, I see a picture of General John B. Gordon, and I look at the face, and I tell people I know it well. I shave it every morning. <laughs> but uh, he actually recovered from his uh, wounds and was back to battle in something like eight months. And he ended up being uh, a senator of Georgia and two times governor of Georgia. Wow, it's amazing, isn't it? That actually speaks a lot to him not being ready to give up life at that point because anyone else would have died from the wounds that he had. As you said, he was shot full of holes. With the medicine back then, he, he should have died. His uh, wife wasn't too far away. He was taken uh, down in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, but she actually came up to the battlefield and he was uh, he was laying there. His head was puffed up like a about the size of a basketball. His shoulder was propped up because he was shot through the shoulder. He really didn't look too good, and he was he, he was afraid that he didn't want to frighten her when she came to visit him. So when she came in the room, he said, "It's your handsome husband been to an Irish wedding." <laughs> <laughs> I love his sense of humor. He's got a great sense of humor, as do you. So I can see where you get it from. <laughs> She nursed him back to help me. Ended up getting uh, St. Elmo's fire in the left arm. A lot of times, if the bullet didn't actually kill you, the infections and stuff did. But uh, he ended up, well, he was a colonel then, but through uh, what he had done that day and other things before that, they, uh, they uh, generally had him promoted up to uh, Brigadier General. Wow. But that wasn't actually the first time you saw him, was it? Because the first time you saw him was when you were in the Air Force, wasn't it? Yes, but I didn't know it was him. Um, there was a, quite a bit of different changes in Gordon's face through the war. With a bullet going through your face, he said he had a Yankee dimple. Was, part of his face was uh, looked like a crushed soda can. But uh, when I was in the Air Force and stationed in Orlando, laying on my bunk, on the bottom bunk, and the... Fellas, it was a small barracks for 18 guys to a room. It was a Air Force hospital, so they had small barracks. And most people used to leave their doors open and light out in the hallway would uh, would be on. So I was laying there one time in the bunk and noticed somebody came walking in and around the locker and stood at the end of the bed. Now, the end of the bed, if you're laying on a on a bunk bed on the bottom, you're having a hard time seeing whoever it is. So I said, you know, I said, hey, what's going on? And and leaned out and looked, and this figure standing there, and I describe him as a thin kind of face, sort of like Abraham Lincoln-ish. You remember when Lincoln was toward the end of his life there, he was, uh, he was actually ill. He had Marfan syndrome, and he had that gaunt look and all that. Well, anyway, this person looked something like that. And then I noticed that I could see the painting on the wall behind him. And uh, not too used to having too many transparent people walk in my room, and they didn't answer <laughs> my talking to them, so I just kind of pulled my legs up toward my chest and rolled out of the bed and scooted around the figure and went down the hall to uh, another room there where I heard the TV on and went in and watched TV for quite a while with the guys and, and said, ah, I'll go back to the the room now, I guess, and I went back to the room, only I didn't go in the room because I walked toward the room and the figure was standing in the door again. I went past, turned around, went, went back to watch some more TV. But 
after seeing some of the pictures of General Gordon going through the wall, one time he had a bout of, uh, it sounded like he had a bout of dysentery for uh, like uh, two months and lost an extreme amount of weight and everything. And when I saw the pictures of him from that period, I said, bingo. I said, that's, that's who was standing in my room. That's who was in the doorway. Wow. Now people say, how can that be? You know, that's a past life. They, you know, well, back then, uh, really just chalked it up to, I didn't know what it was, and that was, and I, I didn't tell really tell anybody about it. Yeah, well, that that's actually one of the things that's debated a lot about it when people talk about on the other side when you cross over. Near death experience people describe that time moves in a different way over there, and it's not necessarily linear and that they can feel like they're there for a great period of time and can be feel like months or years or whatever. But in actual fact, when they come back, it's been literally minutes. So, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it's possible that you could have actually received that projection from yourself, like as Gordon, then. Yes, that portion that was left behind. Do you remember Jesus saying, anything I do, you can do also? He used to tell people that. He used to bilocate and trilocate because a lot of the times when he was uh, over in the, you know, the regular theater where he he was traveling around, the American Indians were seeing him. Oh, I, I actually hadn't heard that. Yeah, there's tales of visits, Jesus coming to the Native Americans and stuff. But anyway, you, you ever hear the expression, he was besides himself? I actually had that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Twice, actually. As you said, there was the apparition, which was obviously you as Gordon, but also when you went to the gravesite as well. But we'll get into that further down the track. But yeah, twice you stood beside yourself. Yeah, I used that line at uh, Gordon's grave in Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta. I was with my mother and she I said, Mom, take a picture of me. You know, and I could tell people here I am besides myself. But... And you said your mum did that? Yeah, she did a lot of travel with me, and I used to get a lot of that uh, patented, you know, mother look that they give their child when they're trying to figure out how many times they dropped them on their head, you know. <laughs> oh, well, she obviously didn't do too badly with you. I think you've turned out okay, so uh, she's done a good job. So the whole thing of you having the experience in the sunken road and then at the Halloween party as well, got you interested in finding out more about the memories. So you then contacted Jean Loomis, who's the director of the Aquarian Centre in Branford in November of 92. And she helped you out quite a bit, didn't she? Yes, but I refused some of the help. She was going to do a, a past life regression. And she said I was a tough nut to crack. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, So she wanted me to do like a meditation just to relax. And she was talking about these pleasant things, you know, the sky's blue and and there's a field and all that. And, and she didn't lead me or anything like a lot of people think that uh, people doing the regressions do it all. She, she was just trying to get me relaxed. And if you see something, it's okay. And if if you don't, that's all right, too, and so on, you know. And it was very pleasant. And I was relaxed, but I started to feel myself moving. Did you ever ride a horse? Yes, I have, yeah. Okay. There's only one feeling. It's like that. Riding a horse. It's riding a horse, okay? Yeah. And then it, I just started laughing. She says, what's the matter? I said, 
I just remembered some stuff. I said, I had this feeling like I was riding a horse. And I said, I had something happen down in Florida when I was in the Air Force. She said, what? I said, one night, in the middle of the night, there's this banging, clanging, and I asked the guys what they're doing. They're making they said, all kinds of noise, and they said they were going for a midnight ride. So they said, you want to come? So I hadn't ridden in a long time, so I went with them out to the farm, and uh, there was quite a few people. It must have been 15 or so people. And there's a man standing there, and he's kind of like the, the foreman or something. He's figuring it. I can almost hear in his head he's doing how many people, how many horses, what horses do I give him, that type of thing. And he yells out, anybody here an experienced rider? And I shot my hand up, and then I put it back down. And he came over, and I was saying to myself, what did I do that for? And he came over, and he looked at me, and he said, are you really good? I said, yeah, I'm good. And he turned around, and he yells to the guy over to the barn, bring out Rebel. And I thought, oh, no, 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 now I've, now I've done it. I'm, I'm picturing this horse with flames coming out its nose and all that, and I'm, I'm going to die. And they brought out this horse, and I got on it, and it was like the expression, we were one. I wasn't a trained rider or any, anything, never did anything like that, only ridden five or six times before that. I turned my toe into the horse, or the horse had turned one way, I'd do the other side, do the other way, I'd pull it and reins it back up and go forward, and had the horse dancing. Well, I thought that was kind of odd, but uh, after the other stuff with the Gordon and the Sunken Road and all the other stuff, and then the name of the horse, Rebel, uh, I found out afterwards that... Uh, General Gordon was a very accomplished rider, used to go on fox hunts and stuff like that when he lived in Georgia. Yeah, when I first read it in the book, I was literally blown away because I did love horses when I was a teenager. I didn't own one. I did ride a little bit, not a huge amount, but because I was interested in them, I used to read about them a lot. And, you know, you read about people doing dressage and things like that. And I know just how difficult it is to get that sense of rapport and it's like a long period of trust and, you know, it, it's normally something that you couldn't just get on a hired horse and be able to do good dressage. And yet you were able to, and obviously you were tapping into the memories of Gordon, who was, as you say, extremely accomplished. Yeah, it all was very gentle. I wasn't slamming my foot and, you know, kicking the horse or anything, just like little cues. Yeah, which is what good dressage really is, isn't it? It's like very gentle, subtle movements. And then there was another thing with a horse, because at the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Gordon rode uh, a horse called Milroy, beautiful black horse. I've seen it written up in a few books and everything. It was absolutely gorgeous. And it did great while the artillery shells and stuff were going off around, but when it got closer to the other army and they started shooting uh, bullets, the horse just went crazy and turned around and ran to the rear, and Gordon's men were all laughing because they knew he's a good horseman, and they knew the horse was spooked. And uh, this big, beautiful black horse went uh, running up. They ran toward a uh, artillery unit, and they stopped it, and they got Gordon and another horse. But that also made me think back to when I used to go to my aunt's house. She had uh, a farm, and uh, my cousin, I was very close with my cousin Dave, or probably more like brothers than cousins. And uh, my aunt's horse was named Tenny because it was a Tennessee walker. You ever see the Tennessee walkers? They do the thing with their front feet. Yeah. You know, back and forth, sort of like dancing. Beautiful. Well, anyway, she had a Tennessee walker. And then uh, my cousin, Betsy, 
uh, horse was Blackie. So anyway, my <laughs> my cousin Dave gets on uh, his mother's horse, and I get on Blackie, and we go out, and we're in a wooded portion, and uh, Penny could run pretty good. Uh, Penny took off, and then Blackie started following, and then and I'm ducking branches, and I'm scraping trees, and I'm yelling at the horse, and I'm pulling on on the reins, and finally get it to slow down. It was kind of like a rescue horse that had been mistreated. Anyway, I didn't know, but this horse had a split tongue, so pulling on the reins, making the horse madder and screaming right in its ear, and it, you know, I didn't know it was deaf either. So it seems like General Gordon and I both had a episode with a black horse. Oh, my God. That's the thing, isn't it? So that's what I mean about you being led to your memories. You were obviously meant to remember them this time around. When you look at the breadcrumbs through your life to lead you to events that are going to remind you of the past, it's it's quite fascinating. Obviously, General Gordon, for some reason, wanted you to remember what happened back then, or maybe you decided that you wanted to lead you to your memory in this life. It's quite interesting how many times it happened in your life. Well, there's, there's another tie-in. Remember I told you about him flipping over at the, uh, Antietam and, and into his own cap? and. Uh, said that he probably would have drowned in his own blood if it hadn't been a bullet hole shot through it. When I was young, my brother's two years older. I had a bike, and we were someplace that he didn't have his bike, so he was going to ride me on my bike. Well, that was good until he started uh, lifting me up and down on his legs. He thought that was funny. <sighs> it was real funny until my foot went into the spokes. Ouch. And then the bike stopped. My head hit the pavement. His head hit my head. The back of the bike hit his head. So I was the one picking the gravel and everything out of my head. And it was bleeding pretty well. And I was wearing my uncle's. He came back from Korea and he had given me his overseas cap, military cap now. Okay. Mm. And I, I carried I carried the blood home to my mother in the cap and handed it to her, thinking maybe she could put, you know, children, thinking maybe she could put it back in or something, you know. But here we go with the <laughs> bloody cap. Yeah, my I never got the hat back, so I don't know. <laughs> I, think it, I think it went in the garbage. Again, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, there, there's all kinds of things like that. When when I was young with one of my friends, where my grandmother lived, grand, grandfather, uh, Hemlock Hill, and we dug a hole. You know, most kids would build a shack, a tree fort, something like that. We dug a hole in the ground, and then we covered it with planks and then put dirt back on the on the top of it. And we would go in there with candles and everything. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of what the uh, battlefields look like, like down in Petersburg and all, but they had things like that. I think they, they had trenches that would connect the different little cubby holes, <laughs> dugouts or whatever they call them. And so that thing that was built as children very much resembled that uh, stuff that they had in, in the war because that was really the beginning of trench warfare back then. Wow. I didn't realize they actually did have the beginnings of trench warfare, like the structures then. You think of it as just being the scenes that you've seen in the photos of them on the fields, basically. Yeah, did photos of it all. They were only used in uh, like defensive positions around the cities and stuff toward the end of the war, you know, when in Richmond, Virginia, and then down Petersburg, just below it and so on. But they were staying there for, you know, they're there for months and months and months, so they're going to try to make themselves comfortable and also try to protect themselves. If if you were having shells burst over your head, 
Wouldn't you want a nice hole in the ground with some stuff covering the top of it? I certainly would want a bit of reinforcement, that's for sure. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. Gordon was at the Battle of Cedar Creek, which was uh, a victory in the morning and a terrible defeat in the afternoon. When they were retreating, he went down a hillside and actually went tumbling and got knocked off his horse. And his, I think his horse got knocked out. <laughs> he said it was, it was, he woke up and the horse was laying there in the brook. My grandfather lived up the top of this hill. was Hemlock Hill, very steep. Now, I was up the top of the hill at my grandfather's house with my brother another friend. They took off down the steep hill, and they went zipping around the corner. And I went down the hill. Now, I'm not pedaling fast enough to catch up to them, so I take my feet off the pedals. Well, I went to put my feet back on the pedals, couldn't get them on to put the brake on, and went right out into the road and slammed into one of the police sergeant's wife's car, right into the side door, bent the bike around my legs. Uh, I think I scared her half to death. That's amazing. When you look at it, it's a wonder you actually lived to tell the tale because you had some really frightening things happen. I don't think I would have liked that as a kid. Either of those events where you end up with the blood in the hat would have been terrifying for me, I think. So actually, with regards to um, injuries that you've had, the one that I found really amazing because I hadn't realised this from reading a book, but the pain that you got on your 30th birthday yeah, exactly my 30th birthday. I didn't feel that I'd ever read anywhere that it made it clear that you at this point didn't know who General Gordon was. You knew that you'd had these strange things happen, but you didn't know who he was or what had happened to him. And on your 30th birthday, you had a strange thing happen, didn't you? I was with my brother and some other friends. We just signed a contract. I was on the fire department. And my brother was a fire lieutenant. And uh, we went down to the VFW to celebrate and at the stroke of midnight, it was uh, uh, my 30th birthday, and we left shortly after that, and I started getting a, a pain in my neck and in my jaw, and um, I'd been a medic in the Air Force, and I knew that that could be like referred pain, and I could be having a heart attack or something like that, but it, it really hurt so much, and I could take a lot of pain, too. I had, I had two central incisors prepped by the dentist without anesthetic for for two crowns, so I could take some pain. <laughs> this really, really hurt. On a scale from 1 to 10, it was 11. So we went over to the emergency room, and uh, they checked uh, checked me out, uh, did EKGs, uh, blood pressure, all kinds of questions, and blah, blah, blah. And, and a couple hours later, the pain subsided, went away. They could find no cause for it, and that was it. Went home. But uh, seeing how it was my 30th birthday, and when people say, hey, how'd you spend your 30th birthday? Oh, I went to the emergency room. You know, so you, you tend to remember that. Well, when Gordon was shot, I was telling you all the different wounds. The last round hit him below the left eye, and it went through and uh, busted out some of his teeth, broke his jaw, and, and tore his, his neck up pretty good. And uh, that the pain that I was having, it was... Uh, that worst wound that he had received at uh, the Battle of Antietam. Only I was having it like 15 years uh, before I ever heard his name and uh, uh, more than 100 years after it had happened. So I also have the medical records to prove that. I was surprised I went back to the hospital for the proof positive people, and they gave me a copy of the records. So if that, that proof positive program, if you go on that, you will see that they did a physical exam. They had a facial recognition expert to uh, find that there was a pretty good match with the eyes and nose and forehead and stuff between General Gordon and I from, from photographs. 
they matched up some negatives. You could overlay Gordon's face and my face, and, and the moon structure would match up. And also, in the video, you'll see the doctor pointing to an area on the forehead that actually matches up with a scar that, that both Gordon and I have. Um, kind of hard to tell about the other parts because of the facial hair and all and all that, you know. And and uh, uh, I also had a three-hour lie detector test, and I will never do that again. I don't have anything to hide, but uh, they're not too pleasant. They try to upset you. They try to rile you up and all that. And uh, uh, I thought I had gotten a 95.6 or something like that on it, and I was out with the, the producer and the director and... and uh, I said, well, I said, I guess, I guess the test went all right because I got a 95.6. The 96, that ought to be pretty good. And they both looked at me and they said, you didn't get a 96. They said, you've got a 99. You almost got a perfect score. And we're glad you didn't because nobody would believe it. What a lot of people say is that just shows that he believes what he's saying. But what it was was it shows I was not being deceitful. We've actually spoken in the past about that there are certain levels of stigma attached to having a memory of reincarnation and in your case the problem of Gordon being actually quite a famous person and so therefore a lot of people go oh of course you're Gordon like you wouldn't be just a normal foot soldier. Uh, you ask most of the people here in the United States about uh, General Gordon and they don't say who you know they don't know somebody down at around Atlanta you know that goes past his statue and all that they might be able to tell you some stuff about him and all that <laughs> but he's not famous famous unless you were a real buff or interested in the history if you were interested in the Civil War, you would know that General Gordon surrendered the uh, Army in Northern Virginia at the formal surrender ceremony at Appomattox Courthouse. Mm. I'm going to talk about that in a little minute. But in your case, too, what I found really fascinating is that when I first came across you, I've watched yours kind of unfold over the years because I remember seeing something where you kind of had talked about what happened at Sunken Road. So I sort of heard that bit and went, oh, that's interesting. And then I heard, you found out about the scars that you have, which we'll go into a little bit because we haven't fully covered it. You've actually got two scars on your face, is that right? One like a star shape in your forehead and one that's like a zigzag scar across your cheek? Yeah, uh, one of my forehead was my brother threw a rock. I jumped out from behind a tree to sort of scare him. I didn't know he was throwing rocks at and he hit me right in the forehead. <laughs> and those... Uh, with the pictures of Gordon and I, that, that those two, we both have the scar in the same place. Exactly, but there's some you've got, you don't even know where you got them from. I think you mentioned, was it the zigzag scar, the cheek scar? You said isn't, you don't remember getting that one. I wish somebody, if they can hear me from above here, uh, stop trying to drive the point home by hurting me, you know, putting me in the hospital, hitting me in the head with rocks, you know. The thing is, when people hear my story, a lot of people, they don't investigate anything, and you know, and they figure that, I saw this picture in a book of a Confederate general, and I thought I looked like him. And then I worked everything back from there to make the stories fit together, where it's pretty much the opposite. I, I tell people, I didn't find him. He found me, like at the, the sunken road. I tell people that's where our hearts met, at the sunken road. I loved your description of that. I actually took that down as something that I was going to read out because I just found it absolutely beautiful the way you described it. And that's the truth. You actually didn't know a lot of this stuff in the beginning. It kind of did unravel. And by God, you're doppelgangers. Uh -huh. I wish I was so clever to have gone into the Library of Congress, saw the photos, and then put markings on my body to match up 
the markings on General Gordon and uh, went and went to the hospital on my 30th birthday and complained about a wound that he got in the face 150 years before that or whatever. No, it's all backwards. It's, it's the other way around. I had some small pictures of Gordon that I wanted, though, uh, some enlargements and stuff like that, just small enlargements, because a lot of the pictures I saw were like almost like wallet size, and I want to blow them. But anyway, I went to a photo shop and or a camera store or whatever, and the guy was saying, "You oh, you want to make copies in the machine?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Well, I'm changing the fluids and everything." He says, "And I want to try the different sizes." So he took my pictures and put them in there and created many different sizes of the picture, actually blowing up one that's like 16 by 12 or something. But I was at home, and I'm looking at the picture, and I look at it, Gordon's cheek, where on the right side where the bullet had exited, anybody that knows ballistics, the, the damage coming out is usually a lot worse than the damage going in because of the fragmentation of the bullets and things like that and the bones and all. But there was a lightning streak-type scar his face looked like a patchwork quilt, and they sewed him back together on the uh, right side. And there was one scar that was like a lightning streak that started at, like mid-ear and came down toward his chin. And I went in the bathroom, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I turned, I had lights changing and all that, and sure enough, there's the lightning streak across my cheek. Also... If you remember the wounds that uh, I told you you got at Antietam, men don't get varicose veins or the spider veins. Women seem to be more affected by those. You don't see them on men's legs too much. I have I have two of those markings. One is on my right calf. Mm -hmm. Gordon said he was first shot through his right calf. And then I have one higher up on the same leg. And he said he was wounded later higher up on the same leg. My left arm, I have a scar about two inches long where a blood clot had been removed. And I asked the doctors where the blood clot come from. He says, I don't know, they just happen sometimes. Uh, I've been having trouble with my left shoulder for about three years now. A chiropractor has been working on everything. He, he was hitting the shoulder. I don't have any marks there, but I do have problems with it and some numbness in my fingers from uh, um, the nerve problems up in that area. And uh, when I was younger, I'm kind of wrinkly now, but when I was younger also there was if the lighting's right, I have a mark under my left eye in the exact position where the entry wound was for Gordon. And then, again, the stuff on the forehead in two places that was uh, we discussed before. Jim Tucker, for anyone who knows reincarnation, is the name of, of the psychiatrist who's actually explored it. And he's had a lot of cases of people who have scars. To have one scar is compelling, but to have five is just... Okay, okay, now you you take the, the forensic guy, what he said, you take the uh, lie detector test, as I'm being honest, you take the markings on my body that match up with Gordon's war wounds, you take the fact that, that we looked at it like each other, and, and also the visit to the hospital, you know, on my 30th birthday, and Gordon at Antietam, he was born in 1832, and the Battle of Antietam was 1862. So how old did that make him at the sunken road? 30. So when do, you, when do you stop saying coincidence? <laughs> if you dressed in Civil War gear and you took a photo of yourself, I would not be able to tell you that that wasn't Gordon. You look identical. Oh, he was a lot thinner. <laughs>
We are the same height and same eye color. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's because um, your past has definitely overlaid. And actually, that brings me on to my next question, because you mentioned in the book about walking on the battlefield. You actually went on a bit of an odyssey after discovering who he was, and you sort of retraced his steps a little bit as you would move around doing things, going to weddings and things. And you visited a lot of the important places in his life. Every battlefield he was on with the Army of Northern Virginia, yeah. It's interesting walking on battlefields, isn't it? You can still feel the lives that were there that were lost. You can still feel the emotion of the place in a way. They're quite haunting, I find. Yeah. Um, I think in the book I wrote about Spotsylvania uh, Courthouse, and it's pretty there. It's a, I'm looking at a picture of it now. The uh, Just some big open fields and some trees here and there and things. When I went there, uh, there's no, there was no visitor center or anything. It's pretty much actually looks as it did back at that time, which is great because there's not too many battlefields left like that. But uh, as I was standing there, I was saying that, you know, all the people that uh, passed away here, and then I started thinking, I said, they're still here. I said, all their blood and stuff that went into the ground, I said, went into the grasses and the trees and everything, I said, it's still there. Uh, the mule shoe was one of the most horrendous battles of fighting I've heard of in any war. There were so many bullets flying around that actually a tree, 24 inches in diameter, that's two feet across, okay, was taken down by musketry. The bullet hit that tree so much that it knocked the tree down. Really? Really. That's a lot, that's a lot of bullets. So now my heart kind of drops a little bit, and uh, I was walking around, and I said, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to take something home from here. You know, yeah, I was going to pick up something, even if it was a rock or stick or something. Just bring, I've, I've done that on other battlefields. I've got some water out of some of the streams and stuff where it was written about in this book. Uh, but uh, I'm walking around and I see a flash, sort of like a flash cube, camera flash cube going off. And it's about eye level and it's over near this tree at the edge of the woods. So I walk over a little closer, it does it again. I get closer, and it does it a third time. And I went over, and I could see it was like coming from a knot hole. Um, and it, it was wet. It just finished raining before I got there. So here with my logical mind was uh, the sun shining on the water that's in the knot hole, was reflecting and making that flash, and that's what it was. That's where my logical mind went. So I just, my head sunk down on my chest a bit, and I looked down, and about one inch off my right foot, there's a brown spot about the size of a quarter. So I dig at it, and it's metal. And I dig it a little more, and I pull it up, and it's uh, half of a cannonball. Wow. Now, I also looked at the photos when I got home, because I've been taking photos. Do you remember my idea about the uh, sun shining on the water and reflecting and all that. There was no uh, shadows or anything. It was clouded over that day. But you, the people have to, if they read my book, they'll understand how I went about this. I read Gordon's book, and then after that, I read some other books about him. First book that I read about him, it started off as that he was uh, born in Upson County, Georgia, at a very young age, moved with his family to the northwest section of uh, Georgia, outside a small town called Lafayette. My father passed away in lived in Florida, and a lot of times the widows don't like to stay in the house after the husband has passed away, so 
my mother sold the house down there, and she moved with my sister up on South Main Street in Lafayette, Georgia. Wow. You actually did that a lot of times because the Air Force Base, you actually ended up um, intaking in a similar place where Gordon had been as well, didn't you? Oh, oh, yes, yes. Now, we'll give people some history that even here in the States they probably don't realize. Uh, Gordon and a lot of the men that he went to war with came from uh, the Raccoon Mountain area, which is part of Georgia and Alabama, and they went to Milledgeville, because Milledgeville at that time was the capital of Georgia. Atlanta's real name is Terminus. They used to be known as Terminus because that's where all the railroad tracks ended up. But they went to Milledgeville because they wanted to join the, uh, the Georgia men, and the governor said that they had enough men, so he said, you know, go back home or whatever and come back some other time. They didn't want to go back home and come back some other time. They, and they intended to be cavalry at that time. But they decided then to go to Montgomery, Alabama, the capital of Alabama, and they became the uh, Alabama 6th Regiment. Uh, when I was in the Air Force for the, the portion to be trained as a medical helper was in uh, Gunner Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. Also, when I first went to go into service, I went up on my 18th birthday. I was sitting in the induction. I was, went around with all the guys. They took everybody. They put me aside in a room, and they said, just stay here. We'll be back. And they came back, and they said, you'll have to come back some other time. We have our quotas and like that. So I went to go to war, and I was sent home. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? It's just weird how many times you've shared similar experiences yep. to him. Yep. It's quite fascinating, really, when you look at it. I was actually going to ask you too, when you were on the battlefields and you were walking around the battlefields, did you ever get any sort of feeling as you retraced his history that he was kind of walking beside you or did you ever feel any of the strong emotion you felt at Sunken Road at any other place? Or? Not really. Well, it was a few places. It was kind of like showing a fireman a fire, okay? And you start thinking about, I would do this, I would do that, and some of those some of those battlefields, like at Antietam, that was a big mess up. McClellan that was there, the President Lincoln actually finally got rid of him after that because he screwed up so many times. At organization, he was absolutely phenomenal. Out in the field, not so good. He was always outnumbered. He always had excuses for everything. But when I was going with some of these uh, experts that I went with on a tour, uh, Gary Gallagher and Bob Crick, probably two of the most knowledgeable men on the Civil War, and one of them was really the most knowledgeable men on the uh, uh, Army in Northern Virginia. Uh, we're at Antietam and everything, and I said, uh, why didn't they send a rear guard to go behind the Confederate? I said, they could have cut him off from the river. They said, because McClellan was here. I said, they, they could have followed up. Afterwards, I said, the river was too high for them to get across. They were stuck there for days. And also asked them about different artillery placements and things like that. And they just, I had them puzzled sometimes. They'd ask me how you know this stuff or why do you ask that and so on. I said, I'll, t I'll tell you someday. I eventually, I eventually did tell the story to them and they got a good chuckle out of it. Used to sign their books to me in strange ways. But we were at uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse. You remember where I told you about the cannonball and the other stuff. And somebody asked uh, Bob Crick, who do you think was the best general here? And Bob Crick said, military man or civilian? Because there was very few civilian generals. You know, most of them had been through uh, West Point, things like that, been military trained. There was only a few civilians. 
Gordon was one of only two civilians to get to the uh, rank. Well, his paperwork was on the, on the desk in Richmond when they, they pulled out, but he was going to be promoted to uh, lieutenant general. He's one of only two civilians to reach that rank. Bob Crick said, uh, professional, military men or civilian? And they said, any. And uh, he came right back and he said, Gordon. He said, and I'd think more of General Gordon if he hadn't written his book. A lot of people said he wrote his book for self-aggrandizement and all this other stuff. That was the stuff that was going around. So I caught uh, Bob Crick and uh, Gary Gallagher afterwards. I said, uh, you know, they say a lot of things about Gordon, the uh, you know uh, purple prose, and everybody was wonderful. You know, and it was uh, sort of a self-aggrandizement. I said, he only lived for couple months after the book came out. And I said, for another thing, I'll tell you why he wrote it. And they said, why? I said, he had a house in Kirkland, just outside of Atlanta, when he was governor, and the house burnt. Now, Gordon had been the head of the United Confederate Veterans. Uh, he tried to leave the organization a couple times, leave the presidency, and they would shout him down. They wanted him to stay in there. So they made him like president for life of the organization. Those men offered to pay to have Gordon's house rebuilt. And I said, Gordon wouldn't do it. So Gordon needed to make some money. So that's why he wrote his book. He wrote the book to rebuild his house. And they'd say to me, how do you know that? <laughs> you should have said, because I'm him. But all through all these stories, I used to get a lot of things from uh, meditations. I practiced meditations. Sometimes I would lay on the floor for five or six hours straight. Sometimes things would come to me. Sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes I'd be surprised, or sometimes there'd be dreams and things like that. But uh, it, it, I take everything with a grain of salt. If I got something that I felt, and then I could get confirmation from like two other sources, I would say that's pretty strong. Okay, and I'll give an example or a great example. It's, it's one of my favorites in the book. I had inklings of a samurai lifetime. I actually had an experience uh, with a person in Westport that actually had something to do with that lifetime, and it was funny. I almost put it in the book, but I didn't want to upset my wife. There's uh, <laughs> some things better left unsaid. Uh, so I had this feeling about this samurai, and I went to see this uh, woman, uh, last name was Smith. I can't remember her first name. She was supposed to be like the best one around. She told me about some lifetimes and stuff, and then she started with this Samurai lifetime. I'm saying, yeah, yeah. I said, I've had inklings and things like that. So now there's my meditation. There's her saying that. I was with my wife in a Borders bookstore about a year after that. And she was over in the baking cooking section. I was, of course, over in the history section. A guy comes in with this nice looking woman and a little kid. I thought maybe they're a family. But it might have been his girlfriend. It might have been his wife because he said, hey, could you watch him? And she said, okay. They sat down at the end of the aisle of books I was in. I turned 90 degrees and I could face them. They were down at another bookshelf. She took a book of like World War II planes and things out. And a little boy who was about five, somewhere around there, is looking at the book and making plane noises and all that stuff. And then I, I, I turned, I was looking at him, I said, hey, cute little guy. And he picks his head up, and he looks through me, not at me. He's looking through me. He's just staring, and he says, Samurai. 
Oh. Woman says, what did you say? I said, samurai. What is that? And she says, um, I think it's a sword and all that. Well, the hair went up on the back, <laughs> back of my neck. And I said, holy moly, soul recognition. I don't know who this kid is, but he picked he picked up on something. And I went over and talked to him and explained that samurai was a person. It wasn't a sword, and they carried swords and so on. And, okay, so what I got, what the, what the uh, psychic got, and then this kid nailed it for me. I said, okay, that's something to <laughs> hang on to. Well, that's it, isn't it? I actually, when I first started out this whole journey of doing the podcast, I started out with the belief that I wanted to separate reincarnation from the spiritualism. The more I actually look into it, the more I realise that in actual fact, I think the reason that people do have that strong sense of of spirituality connected to it is because it's almost like the two halves are just separated by a thin membrane and things do happen from the other side. And whether you like it or not, the two are intertwined. We only live once. But for a long time. We only live once. All these other people that you call other lives are you. True. So they're not really other lives. That's It's like a string running through them. They are all you. You just put on a suit of clothes for the incarnation here on the earth. It's interesting you describe it that way because when people talk to me on the forums about it and they go, well, how can you believe in that in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. And I'll often say, look, it's actually like you pick up a car and you drive it around for 90 years and then you step out of the car. And that's exactly what it is to me. It's like the consciousness goes through the entire lives. We we have the same consciousness that is learning and growing, but we just pick up a series of cars that we drive around for a while. And Ancestry.com and all the Ancestry stuff on your bloodline? Yes. That is just from the skin suits that you wear while you're here, (laughs) all right? Exactly, exactly, that's right. If people realize that as soon as you open the door for one past life, you open it to to others. And if you see some of those others, and they're different colored skin, they're red skin, white skin, black skin, yellow skin, and stuff like that. I've been, as far as I know, I've been uh, Irish, um, Japanese, let's see, uh, two different Indians. Uh, Anastasi and uh, one of the Mariposa tribes, uh, and uh, uh, is French one, so on. But those were all skin suits. They're just suits put on. They're not actually so really, like I wrote in a new section of the, the book that I'm trying to put out now, that uh, we're actually raceless. You know, it's actually it's interesting you should say that. I was going to ask you the question, because you make the point, in the book that your great-grandfather Lewis Knapp was involved in the siege and fall of Petersburg and would have been firing on Gordon's troops. So, in fact, you may have actually, in fact, been fired upon by your own great-grandfather in this time. So do you think that reincarnation is the great leveller, that the fact that we may end up reincarnating into someone that we hated before helps us drop the tags? Daniel Brinkley, years ago, he, he had died twice and he wrote some great books and everything but one of the lines he used to stress in his lectures and things like we are spiritual beings having a human experience we're not humans having a spiritual experience yeah the other way around yeah we're we're powerful spiritual beings and it's just we had a lot of our memory subdued and put in this school room that we're in to learn 
So, you know, you know, you know how they say if you don't learn from the past, you're going to repeat it. Well, like you're saying, some of these people come back and, you know, some of the same old actors are, are showing up. And, you know, it's kind of like God sitting back in his easy chair saying, let's see what you people do this time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Actually, um, Paul Amaral wrote a book based on that thought that, you know, we're now getting a lot of the white power sort of thing coming back and what have you. And there's again becoming this kind of a conflict about it all again and he was making the same point it's because the things in the past are affecting our viewpoint in the future but when you look at it there is no really color or or creed or anything really we're all actually just the one force so it's not just the one consciousness there are definitely individual consciousnesses with us all with with regard to what we are like i'm a white australian protestant no i'm not really i'm just i'm just a soul one of the big problems is they took Jesus's act and a lot of the organized religions started using it to become more powerful and more wealthy and everything. Whereas I think Jesus's whole life could be summed up in one word, blueprint. He was a blueprint. And he used to say, everything I do, you can do also and more. And what did he used to say about the neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. You know why? Because your neighbor is yourself. We all come from the same place. We're just experiencing things different. There was a policeman down in uh, Hawaii through the Likey Likey Pass. There's a big drop-off. It has a high suicide rate. And he went with his partner one time, and there was a guy who jumped, and one of the cops grabbed him and started to go over the edge with him. And I guess it was just his partner just grabbed his foot and saved him and pulled him back. He said, why didn't you let him go? He said, I couldn't, because that was me. Yeah. There's a guy in touch with himself. Yeah, that's right. I tell people if you want to get a, a little idea of what heaven's like, because it's extremely hard to explain, watch the movie What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams. Thoughts are things. Everything that is built starts as a thought. And hell is really your own making. I think that's it, isn't it? Like if you look at life, um, even on earth today, you hear a lot of people go, oh, my life is awful and I hate my life. And but the thing is, the only person who can change your life is you. And if you're unhappy in your life, you need to be brave enough to take the steps and go, I need to change this into something I want to do with my life. But most people don't. And they don't realize that our conscious thought has so much power. You know, I think it really does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You ready for another one? We're all connected. I was the firehouse and... I usually didn't have trouble sleeping. I'd go to sleep later and the rest of it. I was like a mother hen I used to watch over the guys. And then when I got tired enough, I went to bed. So I usually slept good unless there was a call. And uh, I was rolling around this one night. All night, I'm rolling around. What's going on? What's going on? And I roll over and I see my wife standing there. I said, my father died. She said, yeah. Oh. Uh, now, at that same time, my sister was in Georgia. My father's down in Florida with my mother. At 4.30 in the morning, she woke up. It was so upset about my father. She called down there. She said, Mom, is Dad all right? She said, they're taking him out to the ambulance now. So how does that happen without being connected? Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I think, I think it's like force, and we all get back up there, and we kind of enmesh, in a sense. In, we all can link and and become part of the one while we're on that other side. And I think that that's how we get messages on this side from whatever's on the other side. Yeah, and the thing is when the people are 
getting down in the dumps and all. <laughs> I wrote my book, when you find yourself digging in the hole, the first thing you have to do is stop digging and find which way's out. And, you know, a lot of these stories you hear were the people, they really, really had to hit rock bottom before they turned themselves around. Uh, you hear people, a lot, a lot of them struggling through, through life and everything, horrible stories in the beginning, but then you ask them toward the end of their life, well, what part of your life did you like the best? And a lot of times they get nostalgic and go back to the tough times where they've had to struggle and so on, you know, and they, they, they got out of it. I think that's it, isn't it? Like, um, I think we all have those periods in our life where we go, you know, oh, life's too hard or I can't do this. And you start feeding yourself negative talk all the time. But if you change it and you turn it into positive talk and go, okay, it's been tough, but I can go up from here, then you will go up. But if you insist on thinking of it as being negative, it will be negative all your life. Hopefully we learned, yeah. Hopefully we do, to bring it back to what we're all here for. General Gordon wrote in his book about losing General Rhodes, who he'd just watched fall in battle and he was carried away dying. And he said, to ride away without even expressing to him my deep grief was sorely trying to my feelings, but I had to go. And you've been in similar situations in your current life as a fireman where you had to quell your outer display of your concern for your men. Why do you feel that you were drawn to repeat a role that requires such a great personal and emotional sacrifice? It seems to be a, a theme that's running through my lives. Uh, it's, it, and it kind of staggers. It's a warrior thing and it's a spiritual thing because along with the, the, the soldiers, uh, there's a British soldier, that's another story I could tell you about. Um, Confederate soldier, then it was in the Air Force and things like that. But also that was intertwined with uh, different spiritual ones. Uh, uh, a Franciscan friar, uh, a Buddhist monk. And uh, it seems to hop back and forth. I don't, I, I don't know why, but it, I think everybody feels comfortable with certain themes. You know, like uh, philanthropists and uh, uh, caregivers and, and things like that. I, I don't know. It's just just be what I picked. A few times I've looked up at the heavens and said, okay, if you're watching the tape or, or the book, you're looking at the book here, tell myself to stop volunteering for somebody's life guidance because some of them are, are rather tough. But uh, I guess we have, to, we have to go through lessons. And a lot of people say, oh, you you know, they think reincarnation, you keep coming back and you come back and you come back. And, and I said, how horrible would that be? Just keep coming over and over and over again. You have a choice if you want to come back to a lifetime down here on Earth. And there's other places, there's other dimensions and things like that. But uh, it's just your choice. And, you know, we get, I, get, I think we get back over the other side and it's so nice and pleasant and happy and everything. And we just make up these little stories to come back here and play out. And then we get back here. And that's why the newborn children have such wide eyes because they say, oh, crap, I'm back. <laughs> well, actually, Marty Martin and Ryan Hammonds, that, that case, Ryan Hammonds is a little boy, said, I think it's ridiculous that you get to, to live your life and become an old man you know you live to 61 and then all of a sudden you turn around and you're a baby again <laughs> he was like what a stupid system who put that in place which actually was really interesting because he said something like I can't remember his exact age but he said it's ridiculous to get to be 61 and then come back as a baby and Jim Tucker went 
oh, you've got the age wrong that Marty Martin died at. Marty Martin died at 59. When Jim Tucker, for the sake of completeness, went back and went, I'll check this myself. And he went back and checked it all. In fact, Marty Martin was 61 when he died. That wasn't really documented anywhere. So it was one of the really huge proven points in the whole story, which I found really fascinating. Yeah, it's like uh, Robert Stoller that you uh, uh, did a podcast with. He was getting some things that didn't make sense, and he'd be led to different states and different people and museums and ended up finding notebooks and all that that actually proved what he was trying to disprove to begin with. Mm. The, The hunchback painting blew me away. The fact that, A, he remembered painting a hunchback painting, because let's face it, who would think of that as a subject matter? And the second thing was that he went to New Orleans in exactly the week that that painting, which had been in a private collection for like 60 years or something, was actually displayed in an art gallery that he walked into. What are the chances of that? Well, I told I told you the library story a, a while back about uh, I wanted to get a copy of a Youth Companion magazine article that Gordon had written about his childhood, his boyhood growing up in, in Georgia, and the only copy was supposed to be in the main library in Atlanta. And uh, I went in the main library in Atlanta and went to the reference desk and asked them about it, and they looked around in a computer and stuff, and I said, no, we don't have anything like that. And I said, well, uh, yeah book that I read said you do and they said well a lot of things changed back in the 30s here and I said the book was written in 1955 and other reference people had gathered around and they get like knights knight errants and they disappeared and <laughs> and about 20 minutes later the uh, first woman I was talking to came back with a piece of paper in her hand she said look what I found she said uh, I found a copy of the article it was in a room that's been locked for eons and we just got the key for that room this morning and I said, you cut the key because I was coming. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? That's incredible. True story. Yeah. I believe you completely. You know, that's what makes me think that, that somehow it's connected from the other side because how do things like that happen unless you unless you accept that there is something happening on the other side to lead us to information? And why? Why are they leading us to information? Why do some people remember their past lives? And you would say, okay, well, it might be an accident, because at first I thought, well, it seems like it's a form of PTSD, you know, and maybe that's what triggers it and stops the normal blocking of the memories. But then when you look at it, and like in your case, it's not a matter of yours being blocked. You didn't remember them. And then you remembered them because you were led to them because there were so many breadcrumbs. Someone or something, probably you, was leading you to remembering the, the memories. So. Yes, but in a way I did remember some of the stuff and was acting it out before I knew the reason for it. Yeah, which is so, but you didn't, you didn't know at that point that you were reincarnated. So why did you think at the time that you were? No, no, it, it, was, it was just a bunch of puzzle pieces that were left laying around. Then you have the trigger incident at Antietam, which leads me backwards and forwards, finding out new things in, in different ways and also remembering things from the past that happened. Mm that I actually have documentation like the, the, the hospital visit and all that stuff, you know. So here here it is. I, I didn't make it up. Here's the, oh, no. I, I, here's the picture. I believe you can. Here's the scar. You, you, you've, you've definitely <laughs> sold me. I believe you completely. I, th- I think it's you definitely had the memories, and I think you definitely were led to, to remember them. Why do you think you were led to remember them? Why do you think that this happened? Any any theories? or? Uh, Okay, why why are we talking to each other on the phone? You're going to put this in the podcast, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, I am. And yeah. put it out there. 
put it out there for other people. Yeah. Like, like I said in my book, uh, long after I was beaten over, over the head with reincarnation, you know, so much so that I'm saying that what what is this all about? I'm supposed to put it out there for other people. Yeah, that's my feeling on it too. I feel like we're being led to actually bring it out, and I think it's maybe because of what's going on. Maybe it's it's to make people realize, look, you're focusing too much on the wrong things. You need to start looking at what you're really meant to be down here doing. Yeah, yeah, you have to uh, be aware of things. You know, when when a sign shows up, maybe you could recognize it as a mm. as a sign. Mm. But then again, then again, we have that old free will thing going, and we start <laughs> going off in the wrong direction. You know? But a lot of times, things will happen to try to get you back on. But there's it's sort of like a non-interference thing. But the little clues can keep coming. <laughs> There's some people who don't believe that we have a life lesson when we're down here and there's other people who believe that we do. I personally think we come down to try and experience some particular aspect of life because as we've talked about, we, we do seem to repeat the same things over and over again at times in our life, even just in one lifetime, even in my lifetime, mistakes I've made, I'll repeat and repeat and suddenly I go, why is this happening again? And then my conscious brain goes, because you're not learning, you need to look at what you're doing. And then when I do that, it stops repeating because I've actually addressed it. What does it say then if we're getting these messages, like and we're getting these hints to follow certain paths? Like, what do you think the other side is trying to get us to learn? I, t I told you it's like a script and we have input into it. You know, um, Shakespeare said all the world's a, a play and we're just merely actors on the stage. But so you know what's the like what's the meaning of life? Yeah, you go climb the, the Himalayas and go find a monk and he'll tell you a wet bird doesn't fly at night or something like that. <laughs> but the real the real meaning of life is the living of life. Yeah, that's it. That's the yeah. journey. Now, if we were on the other side, I could stand with you and we could look at our life books and oh, here's why. Oh, that's why that happened because I did this here. So on. Now you may be here to learn a lesson or something. Uh, pay back somebody that helped you because if you're going to do an act and all that, wouldn't it be good to work with a lot of the same actors? I, I know a lot of the people in my life have been in other lives with me. So you do with the same people. So you may owe them, you know, help them out and trigger them to do, do something. Uh, you're here as a teacher and a student and just everything. It's just life. Yeah. I was going to ask you something about that because um, I've got to say, one of the things I loved about reading your book, I've got to say, Fanny Gordon is an amazing woman in her own right. And I absolutely loved reading her story. I would love someone to write a book about her because she is just an amazing woman. She is such a strong, incredible uh, force behind General Gordon. You mentioned that you felt like you might have known your own wife, Anna, in a past life. I read that somewhere. I'm not sure where I read it. Is that what you feel? Did I read right? We've been together before, yeah. Yeah, 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 and uh, I'll, I'll tell you a good one. I'll tell you how we're all connected. I'll tell you some more uh, psychic stuff or spiritual or however you want to pull it. Put it. Uh, um, I was going through a divorce. I was out of the house. I went from a house that sold for 1.3 million into a two-room apartment. I was having a hard time making my car payments. Okay, so I'm down in the dumps. But the woman that lived upstairs would call before she came down because the laundry was down in my area to come down to use the, use the laundry. And one time she called. Every once in a while she would 
asked me something strange. She said, what color are your eyes, would you say? I said, well, sometimes they look blue, sometimes they look green, sometimes they look gray. I'd say steel blue. I don't know why I said that, steel blue, but that's what I said. Then she came down one time, and I had gotten out of the shower, and my hair used to be a bit curly, so I would blow dry it out straight. And she came down and saw my hair before I blew it out straight, and she said, is your hair naturally curly? I said, well, wavy, not really curly, wavy, yeah. Well, she called down one time, and she said, I had a dream about us last night. I said we were sitting on a log next to a lake and just silence on the phone. So she called me upstairs and she played a tape where she'd been uh, in a psychic. And the psychic was talking about, here we go with the samurai again, um, oriental lifetime and so on and uh, blah, blah, blah. And uh, But it, uh, it was forbidden, the two people getting together type of thing. And, uh, but as the psychic went on, she said, you're going to meet a, oh, one time she called downstairs and she wanted to know what color my hair was. I said, oh, I've been out in the sun a lot. I just, I don't know, it's sandy. So, so in, on the tape, this psychic that she had seen four or five years before, whatever it was, says, you're going to meet a man who's going to have steel blue eyes and sandy, wavy hair. He's going to be married at the time with two children, which I was, and went through some of this other stuff. But that was just, you know, I was out of out of the house. I was down, and and uh, it seemed I ran into somebody that uh, been with before. Wow. My wife worked with a woman whose husband was a dispatcher on the firehouse. And I, but this woman talked to her uh, husband, and she was a bit of a matchmaker. Said, "Oh, there's this woman over at work. Oh, this woman over at work." So one time I went in and said uh, to the dispatcher, is your wife working today? And he said, yeah. He said, call her up and see if that woman's there. Call her up. He said, yep. I said, okay, hang up. And I drove and found uh, the little matchmaker. I said, where's this woman you're talking about? And she said, oh, you want me to say, what do you want me to do? You want to introduce you want me to? I said, just introduce us and go away. So uh, went over and she introduced me to this woman and uh, – We've been married 30 years. I have a uh, photograph of my wife and another one of uh, Fanny Gordon. If you looked at the two of them, you'd start laughing. They quite a bit, hair part the same way, same, they were willowy, so they're rather thin. And at the time, the picture was taken. I found an old picture of my wife. Pictures of Fanny I have was, was in her younger years, like uh, in her 20s, late 20s and so on. But uh, they look quite a bit alike. Both brown eyes. They got a good sense of humor. Yeah, she had a good sense of humor, too. Yeah, a lot, a lot of things match up. But she actually saved my life. I, I lost uh, more than 50 pounds going through the divorce. I look like a scarecrow. Now, she's a gourmet chef and baker. I gained 60 pounds after I met her. <laughs> In that case, she definitely is Fanny Gordon because she saw what you needed and she uh, stepped up to the plate, <laughs> literally. <laughs> it's tough stuff now when I want to lose the weight, though. <laughs> there was some stuff that was written up on Fanny Gordon. She shows up in a few books, and there was one, uh, Women of Gettysburg, even though she wasn't actually at Gettysburg. Yeah, she was around. She saved his life when he was wounded bad and took care of him. Yeah, I just... 
loved the comment in the book where they said that um, he was romantically attached to his wife for all of their lives together. Like I thought that was, theirs was a real love story, wasn't it? Okay, you want a little romance? I wrote about it in the book. Maybe you didn't get to it yet. The jasmine plant? Oh, no, I haven't got to that yet. Okay. There was a thing, uh, and I think it was the women in Gettysburg, the stuff about uh, Mrs. Gordon. And she wrote that General Gordon always planted Cape jasmine in the spring, and every winter it died. Before we were married, I had a, a, a condo, and she was helping me furnish it and stuff. But I bought a plant. The first plant I bought was a jasmine. Okay, remember I said we've been married 30 years? Yeah. I can turn around and the jasmine is right next to me. It used to be a little plant about six inches high. It got to the point where it's about six feet high, but I have to carry it in and out to the back porch and inside during the winter so it doesn't die. But anyway, when I was writing that portion of the book about the jasmine, I love the smell of jasmine and everything, I read that portion of the book. My wife comes up behind me, and guess what she drops over my shoulder onto the table? A jasmine. Yes, and romantic. It is. It is very romantic, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I tell you what, I find Fanny Gordon to be a, an amazing personality. You know how you always say the uh, what, who were the five people you'd sit down for dinner with if you could pick anyone in history? I've got to say, I think I'd pick Fanny Gordon. Her stories, the bits that were touched on were amazing. Her turning back the soldiers when they were running away and and um, her saying, no, you must return to fight. And one of them waggishly replying, come on, boys, let's go back. We may be able to say no to General Gordon, but we can't say no to, to his wife. I love that. I but the, she, she, had a, she had a rough life too. She, she was living out and, you know, was traveling around with the, uh, with the troops when she, when she could. And uh, Petersburg, uh, Gordon was in charge of... Uh, Half of uh, General Lee's army, he had one of the corps, and he his men were the last ones to pull out of Petersburg as they were pulling out of Richmond, and he had to destroy the bridges going into Petersburg, knowing he was leaving Fanny and their newborn son, John Bound Gordon Jr., in uh, Petersburg. Yeah. Not knowing what the fate was going to be, you know, if there was going to be shelling or burning of the city or whatever, you know, so... That had to lay heavy on his heart a little bit. <laughs> it must have been very difficult for him, you know, and to, well, for her too, to be going through that when you're pregnant. You know, that's a feat of strength right there. But General Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, was told that this is Gordon's condition and where she was, and he uh, stationed uh, guards on the house to not let anybody in. Oh, wow, really? And they were doing a great job because a week later when uh, General Gordon came back from Appomattox after the surrender and everything, he tried to go in the house, and they went to stop him. They said, Mrs. Gordon's not supposed to be disturbed or something like that. He says, not even by Mr. Gordon. Oh, that's amazing. I wanted to ask you about that, too. You were talking about the Civil War ended on April 12, 1865, in front of the Peers House at Appomattox Court. And people have surprisingly assumed that if it were possible, you'd like to return to the time of the Civil War. And you state in your book, there's only one day you'd like to return to. And that was the formal surrender by General Gordon to Chamberlain. How do you feel about the defeat and why would you have liked to have been there? How do I feel about the Well, I'll tell you how General Gordon felt about the defeat. He fought the last battle there with some of his men and they had the option of keep fighting or giving up. And it finally got to the point where he wrote a note to General Lee saying that he could 
not much longer go forward unless he was heavily supported, and that's when General Lee decided that it was time to surrender and all. But uh, there was accounts of people seeing General Gordon in the woods dressing into his uh, dress uniform and crying because oh. he was getting dressed. These guys, you have to remember, when they surrendered, they didn't know if they were going to be lynched or shot or what was going to happen. But uh, if you read about the surrender, Joshua Chamberlain was on the Union side. He was the general there receiving the formal surrender. The surrender was on Palm Sunday, April 9th, and the formal surrender was on Wednesday 12th. And uh, it was just amazing how the soldiers treated each other. And you have to imagine what a relief it is, no matter what side you're on, that you're not going to have to go through the things that you've been through already and going back home. And Gordon was talked to by one of the senators, I believe, I can't remember who it was down there, explaining Abraham Lincoln's plans for the South, you know, after the, the end of the war and everything, which sounded good to him. But then, uh, let's see, that was the 12th or 13th, and Lincoln was shot on the 14th, so that kind of uh, messed up things. Oh, really? Was it that close to the end of the war? Yeah. Um, I think things might have been a little different in the South if uh, Lincoln had remained alive. But he was also sick with Marfan syndrome, and also he wasn't long for this world anyway. When we've looked at the last few years, one of my greatest fears has been that you were going to end up going back to Civil War. Yeah, I say in my book, the worst thing about the Civil War is that it happened, that they couldn't have settled things, you know, through negotiations and compromises. It would certainly be a lot better than uh, 600,000 people dying. We're very close to one in the United States if they don't be careful. That's what's worrying me with the whole thing of um, how is it all going to go down politically at the moment. I mean, I think it's still very dicey, but I'm hoping that common sense prevails. It's a really amazing part of history that we're in right now. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? I just wanted to ask a, a, one more question, or a couple more actually. Jean Loomis told you that you were innocent from the events of the past and that all actions undertaken by General Gordon had been done with the best knowledge he had to go with on the time. So if he made any mistakes, you know, it's not really necessarily something you should dwell on now. She said, guilt comes in retrospect, it's not in the moment of doing. Do you think General Gordon or you had any regret about the fighting or decisions he made? And do you think that anything of that guilt and regret has come through to your life now? Yeah. Well, first off, what Jean Loomis said was, you're an innocent child of God. That's right. She did too. Yeah. Yeah. That was comforting. And, mm. you know, all through different lifetimes, you know, who's to say what's right or wrong or, you know, good or bad? Some bad things might bring about good things and so on. It's the life that we live and we're put in the position that we're put in wherever we end up landing. It's like a lot of people nowadays are very critical of the Civil War and all the stuff that happened back then, but that was that time period. Everything that came before it led up to that, and you have to play the hand you're dealt. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson knew that there was a problem with slavery. He wanted to get rid of slavery when they were doing the uh, Constitution and everything, he was kind of voted down on that. And he said to him, we have a wolf by the ears and cannot longer hold it nor safely let it go. So he knew something's going to happen. Now, back then also was manifest destiny. We were going across the West and down into Mexico, the war with Mexico, and had plans of going all the way down to uh, 
South America, and what stopped that was the looming of the Civil War. So that's when they made the agreement, hey, uh, Rio Grande's the boundary, that's it, we're out of here, see you guys, instead of occupying that country, because there was a feeling that there might be the Civil War coming. So that was a good thing that they stopped, right, for the people down in Mexico and Central America and all that. So there's good and bad in everything. It's hard It's hard to see it sometimes. Well, I actually think when you look at the past that no matter how bad something is that you go through, something good comes out of it. I really believe that. Oh, yeah. You hear about people that were in a horrible car crash, you know, and they were uh, all bandaged up and strung up and in the bed for, you know, a month or two and, Everybody said, oh, that's terrible. That's so, so sorry. Sorry. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. I finally got to slow down and think about my life and so on, and they planned their life out from then. So what is good and what is bad? Well, that's it. And, and often when you hear of people who have near-death experiences where they nearly die, they actually come back and often make really massive life changes to their life and go in a completely different direction to the direction they were heading in the first place. So... I really believe sometimes we're meant to go through some of the things we do. And I remember I remember you talking about time and all that. Time is here on Earth is a, what we call it. Another friend of mine, one of the firefighters, he said, you know, you've got an interesting story, but I believe in things that are real, things they can see, things they can feel. And he starts banging on the side of the building, a brick. I said, okay, Pete, you want to talk about that brick? What's that brick made out of? Clay and all these molecules, the atoms and so on, you get down far enough and these, they aren't even touching, there's space between them. So you call that solid, but that is not really solid. That could be better described as an event happening in front of you. That's very true. And he said, stop it, stop it, you, you give me a headache, stop it. Years ago, you used to ask a scientist if they believed in God, and they say, no, I'm a scientist, and like my friend, you know, I believe in things that are solid and you can be proved, and they're... And most of the scientists you go to now, you ask them if you believe in God, and they say, I have to because I'm a scientist, because they got into the micro and the macro. I think the micro and the macro go to infinity both ways. You know, they, get, they got down into the quantum physics and all that, and they found out that the uh, experimenter, the person doing the experiment, had an effect on the outcome of the experiment. Yeah, that's basically what Jim Tucker was saying. And I, I think that's the thing. I think yeah. when you look at it that way, then you realize, well, we can influence our lives. We can influence the earth and, you know, in a lot more ways than we're aware of. That's why I say if people are unhappy in their life, the only one who can change that is them. And like, like the Native Americans, uh, um, everything has a spirit. Mm. Well, I think you could trade that word spirit for consciousness. Because I remember one time, you know what a Petri dish is, right? Mm-hmm, yep. I saw that one time with some uh, heart cells, single heart cells all spread around the Petri dish. And they're all beating at different beats. Okay? But then they pushed them together, and they started beating in unison. Oh, wow. I'm saying to myself, that's real good. They're not connected to a brain or anything. <laughs> and, and, and they push them together, and... Boom, they know their heart cells and they start acting like the heart cells. Well, that's it. When you think about it, I think that's what happens when we die. I think we are a series of cells all pulsing and carrying on in our own little individual whatever. And when we die, our force has a way of going back to the source like a homing pigeon does. And then we get back there and we we all sync up. And 
I, I think that's why when people have near-death experiences, they say things like, I knew the answers to everything. I didn't have to ask. I knew the answers to a lot of things. None of that comes back with us when we come back down. Unfortunately, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if it did? When I went to the battlefield that time, I walked down into the road and I made that left-hand turn. Mm. And also part of the story is I walked into the exact position of Gordon's unit. Oh, wow. Yeah, so what I did was I walked into what they call a harmonic resonance. Mm. You know, something on battlefields abide, like you said, something there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a big record. Everything's being recorded. Yeah. So I'll, I'll leave your wonderful self in peace, but I've got one last question. Would you, for a start, go on this journey again? If you could take it all back and you could leave it be, would you leave it be? And the other question is, if someone does decide, to go and do a search, how would you recommend they tackle it, I suppose, is the thing. What, what did you find that was most helpful for you? Yeah, I was led all over the place to books I should read and places I should go and people I should meet and things I should do and so on and so on. Well, first off, I'd do it all over again. <laughs> there were some rough spots and really, really bad spots and all. It's sort of like when the student's ready, the teacher will come. People... If they spend some time with themselves, if they write down dreams, a lot of times dreams aren't just fantasy, but people need to slow down and spend a little more time with themselves. And if you get inklings about things, you, you can follow them up. Like like I said, when this started out with me, I had a choice, but it started getting really strange to either uh, forget it or go on and look into it. And it's kind of hard to forget stuff like that when it happens to you. And then things keep happening over and over again, and you're really assured that you're on the right path. But uh, we're going to see what happens with this uh, new book, because I, I was at a psychic one time, and I sat down, and she didn't take my hands or nothing, and we just talked, and she was like shuffling tarot cards, not putting them down on the table, and she just looked at me, she said, you're a writer. And I said, no, not really. Yeah, you're a writer. I said, well, I'm working on a book now. She said, two books. You're going to do two books. I said, no, don't say that. I'm having a hard enough time with one. I don't need to do two. That's right. Keep an eye out for Jeff because you are definitely going to see him again with the new book. And the new book involves a story I've discussed in the past. I'll just say, say as a teaser that it involves Little Fireman and I think it will be a fabulous read. I am the Jeff in her Little Firefighter podcast. That's right. This is the Jeff. I am the fire chief. And the one great thing it will do is also give you a chance to catch up with Jeff's own story because Jeff's book, sadly, is out of print. And I've got to say, I've been reading it this week. It's fabulous. I just wish that it was still for sale. As I mentioned to you personally, even if you're not really into reincarnation, just to read about Gordon and his life and the things you discovered, it's, it's a beautiful book. As an Australian, I don't know a lot about the Civil War. I don't. And... To be able to read it and to read it written with such empathy and compassion, like, it's it's amazing. You just don't get war stories, really, effectively, war stories written with that level of compassion to them. Well, I, I was lucky to find uh, that Gordon had written a book because then I could read about him and then I could write my book and put in there the thought that maybe I would in the future be coming back and referring back to my book and Gordon's book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. So I'm, I'm, my, I'm, I'm really a ghostwriter. <laughs> exactly, you are. I, well, can you buy 
General Gordon's book anymore, or is it is it out of print? Uh, uh, General Gordon's book of reminiscences of the Civil War is in the public domain. So a lot of people are printing it up. It's in uh, paperback, and uh, you can get original copies and uh, you know uh, reprints and stuff. It, it's out there. It's just uh, go to Amazon. You'd be surprised how many copies of his book are out there. Oh, that's great. I'll have to um, have a look myself and see if I can find it because I I really loved reading his recounts of what happened in the war and you know his recount of finding Fanny out in the street with the soldiers and it's just it's everything really it's a it's fascinating adventure it's a an interesting read it's a love story it's everything really it's history but I've just got to say thank you so much and um, have everybody go to my website, jeffreykeen.com, J-E-F-F-R-Y-K-E-E-N-E.com. And you'll see there's a 14-minute video there, and there's also some uh, excerpts from uh, both of the books. Plus, there's also some interesting interviews that you've given as well. I read another interview that you led me to that was really interesting as well. So explore Jeff's website and sign his guest book for him. And yeah, keep an eye out for his book, because I think you've got something really special coming. Thanks so much for doing this interview, Jeff. It's just been amazing. I really appreciate it. You were, you're welcome. It was fun. It, it brought some things up that I forgot about myself. So thanks. <laughs> no worries at all. And I'll talk to you again soon, hopefully, when the book comes out. Yes, you will. Yep. <laughs> all right, then. Well, you take care and I'll catch you then. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. I had to laugh when Jeff said that he wondered if he may end up coming back and referencing his own book and John Gordon's book again when he reincarnates in his next life. If there is anyone who can prove reincarnation for a third time, I'm putting my money on Jeff. We touched on Jeff's experience at John Gordon's grave, but we never actually got around to covering it. So to fill you in on what happened, Jeff and his mother visited Oakland Cemetery to see if they could locate John Gordon's grave. They got directions from a curator at the cemetery and Jeff asked where the family plot was and was told there was no family plot. He felt that wasn't right and he had a strong feeling that the family were all there together, so he questioned the guide again, who informed him in a terse voice and cold stare that there was no family plot, just John buried with Fanny. So Jeff and his mother went to the grave and found John and Fanny's grave On the gravestone, they described Fanny as the wife of John B. Gordon. Jeff felt that it should have read the other half of John B. Gordon. She followed him faithfully throughout the campaign, sometimes to the chagrin of the other officers. General Early, a blunt, forthright general who, as a bachelor, had no love of the women following their men around, once stated, I wish the Yankees would capture Mrs. Gordon and hold her until the war was over. Being aware of this statement, Fanny, in her typical forthright fashion, good-naturedly called him on it one night. The general was a kind-hearted man, so although he was momentarily embarrassed, he gallantly replied, Mrs. Gordon, General Gordon is a better soldier when you're close by him than when you're away. So hereafter, when I issue orders that officers' wives must go to the rear, you may know that you are accepted. His gallant reply earned him a round of applause. So, Jeff spent some time at the grave and took some pictures of himself beside himself, and then they wandered off and explored the graves of a few of the other generals there. Then they went back to the car and started heading back out of the cemetery, taking turns here and there on the extensive grid of roads that runs through the cemetery. Suddenly, Jeff's mother said, 
Hugh Harrelson Gordon. Jeff hit the brakes and asked his mother where she saw the name. She pointed to the spot and asked her son who he was. Jeff replied that he was the son of John and Fanny Gordon. So Jeff was right. When they went to the grave, the rest of the Gordon family graves were there, including two other children of John and Fanny. If Jeff had taken any other roads to get out of the cemetery and there were many ways out, they never would have found it. The family plot contained the graves of John and Fanny's son, Hugh, his wife Caroline and their daughter Mary. Behind those graves were two very poignant graves, one larger than the other. The larger gravestone read, John B. Gordon Jr., son of John B. and Fanny H. Gordon, 1865-1884. This was the grave of the child born during the Battle of Petersburg, who survived the battle but would go on to die at the age of 19 from typhoid fever. The right tiny grave held only a very simple inscription. It simply said, Infant daughter of John B. Gordon and Fanny Harrelson Gordon. There were no dates listed. The baby had not even lived long enough to receive a name. Jeff said that he didn't ever feel the same wellspring of emotion as he walked the battlefields in his quest to retrace General Gordon's life but here in Oakland Cemetery he was overwhelmed once more with emotion, as the sudden thought, my poor little girl, hit him hard. He wrote that if his mother had not been with him, and he had not had to fight to suppress his emotions, that he would have had a similar reaction as the one he experienced on the Antietam battlefield that started his long quest. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really enjoyed making it, as I love Jeff's sense of humour, and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about it and I can be reached by email on reincarnationplr at gmail.com or through my website reincarnationplr.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook under Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember, you are unique and your life has a purpose. Music